Hey everyone, welcome to Divinely Modern, the podcast, a platform and community that provides encouragement, research, and dialogue for people who are deconstructing their faith and asking the question, now what? Where can I go from here? This platform offers support and conversations for dismantling abusive theology while rebuilding the faith based on love and grace. I am your host, Haley the Scientist, an atmospheric physics researcher, a deconstructing Christian, and someone who loves God and loves caring for God's creation. So join me in discovering what it means to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I get so many questions online about how white evangelicals think, and quite honestly, I have a lot of questions myself. Why do white evangelicals fall for conspiracy theories so easily? Why are they so preoccupied with getting people saved more than loving people well? How can a group of people follow a religion of love and justice, but then support such racist attitudes and behaviors. Today, we get some answers to these complicated but important questions. In today's episode of Divinely Modern, I talk with professional psychologist Dr. Dave Verhagen about his book, How White Evangelicals Think, The Psychology of White Conservative Christians. Our conversation was incredibly enlightening, and he has even more insights in his book, so I highly recommend checking it out. I'll include a link to the book's Amazon page in the show notes for you to check out later. In this conversation, Dr. Dave Verhagen sheds light on how white evangelicals are more influenced by their psychology than even their theology and how American exceptionalism has paved the way for a narcissistic nation that has thrived in evangelicalism. If you are anything like me, your mind is going to be blown just about every minute of this conversation. So let's go ahead and dive in. Hello, everyone. I am so excited for this podcast today. We are going to be talking about the psychology of white evangelicals. Dr. Dave, would you like to introduce yourself and your platform? Yeah, my name is Dave Verhagen, and you're Haley the Scientist. I'm Dave the Psychologist. <laughs> I am a licensed psychologist. I've been practicing for over 30 years. I'm also an author. I've written nine books, including some psychology books, a parenting book, um, a, a biography, a business book, but the most recent book is How White Evangelicals Think, which is the book that has taken me the longest to write. It's the book I'm probably most excited about. And it's really uh, the book I think that will will um, provoke the most conversation of any book that I've written. So I'm really excited to be talking to you about it. So you start out your book with a bit of a discussion about how it's difficult to define evangelicals in research. And I love how you start with that and start with the 
overall the background of research, the methods, the process, et cetera. So how do you define who is an evangelical in research? That is a great question. And I'm really glad we're top loading that question at the beginning here, because from a research standpoint, when you're doing any measure of a, of a group, you have to have a have to have a way of operationalizing that. So there historically have been three ways to think about how you would include someone as part of a group. So for evangelicals, there are three ways of thinking about it. The first is belief. So um, there, there are, for example, doctrinal statements or belief statements that um, depending on who you read, they would say, this is what an evangelical would believe. So there's one that is called a quadrilatical. There are like four different statements and that like almost all evangelicals should believe those things. Then uh, Barna has about nine different tests of an evangelical. You must believe this, 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 and this. Well, the problem with that is what if you believe seven of the nine things? Or what if you believe them sort of and not a lot? You know, the, the operationalizing operationalizing belief is really difficult. So belief is a really hard way to, to define who's in this camp and who's not in this camp because it depends on how many beliefs you're talking about, the degree to which someone believes those things, the consensus of agreement about that. So we have to put that one aside because it's not super reliable. The second is behavior. So first is belief, then behavior. Behavior is thought to be uh, what are the actions or practices that someone who would consider themselves to be an evangelical might do? Well, it might be read your Bible, pray, attend church, tithe, volunteer, those kinds of things. And again, we have the exact same problem. So how many times do you have to attend church in a given month or year? Um, what kind of church must you attend? Uh, how often do you pray? And the other part is that people lie. We know this from the research <laughs> that when you ask people like, how often do you pray? And they say, when we have other more objective measures of it, they don't add up. They don't measure uh, accurately. So people lie about that. So belief is problematic. Behavior is problematic. And it leaves one more thing, and that is belonging. And what that means is, is someone uh, opting in? Are they self-described that way? Now, obviously, that has its own problems, too. but what we're really looking at in the research is someone who considers themselves to be an evangelical Christian or someone who um, calls themselves something similar to that, a born-again Christian, a conservative Christian, uh, something like that. So that's really the, the, the most reliable measure. Obviously, it's got its own problems because what if you say, yeah, I'm an evangelical, but you believe very little about what evangelicals believe? Well, the truth is that that's actually what we're experiencing culturally is that a lot of people might consider themselves evangelical, but um, they don't really line up with historic beliefs. I think there was um, a recent survey that came out and said something like 43% of, of self-described evangelicals don't really even believe in the divinity of Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, pretty solid anchor point in terms of um, belief. So it is problematic, but it's the most reliable thing that we have. 
what we're really looking at when we're talking about evangelicals is who's considering themselves to be an evangelical. I will say I really loved reading that section in your book because it made me think about my own deconstruction journey because mm-hmm. um, when I thought more fundamentalist, one of the things I was so particular about was how to define a true Christian, even not even just evangelical Christian. And I was obsessed with, right. you know, who is a true Christian, who is not. And one of the things I have grown into learning is thinking more about the belonging aspect of if someone identifies themselves as a Christian, I'm going to respect that and say, yes, that person is a Christian because that's how they identify. So it was really neat to see that topic also addressed in research as well. Yeah. And it's not just me. That is kind of the, the standard now. Uh, the people like Ryan Berge and others who who look at trends in religion and religion in the public uh, square, that's by and large the standard that we're using. That's great to see. Thank you so much for uh, sharing about that. So how did you become interested in the psychology of white evangelicals specifically? (laughs) That is the million dollar question for me. (laughs) And I will say it really ties to my own story and you alluded to your own story. So I'm a person who grew up, um, I went to a Christian school from fifth to 12th grade. I got involved in campus ministry when I was in college. I did volunteer campus ministry when I was in graduate school. I got involved in a evangelical church post-college and, you know, did everything from teach Sunday school to serve on an elder board. Uh, I had a faculty appointment, adjunct faculty appointment with a uh, evangelical seminary to teach Uh, counseling, um, things like that. So I was very immersed in this. And that, you know, for all of my developmental years, significantly from the time I was really middle school forward, I was in this evangelical world. And then I hit a point in my adulthood, really because of what I was seeing with my clients and the things that they were struggling with, uh, my own family. Uh, I have um, four children, all adopted children. Um, and then also just what I was observing in the bigger culture that I was going, okay, what is this and what is going on? And is what I'm seeing now just seeing through new eyes or is this something that's been there all along? Is it just crawling out from under the rock or, or is it new? And so I really was confused. And so the way that I process stuff is I write, I am a writer. And so I would just, during my writing times would just, you know, write and it would be, you know, angry and confused and all that. And it would just go all over the place. And I wasn't really intending it to be a book, but then there was a moment where I realized, oh, I have something to offer this. And that is I'm a psychologist. I'm a good consumer of psychological research. And if I could take a look at the questions that I have through the lens of psychology and answer them through research, not through my own opinion, not through my own sort of um, my own grid, then maybe I could come close to getting some answers. So I started posing questions like, why are the people who are supposed to be the most selfless, the most kind and generous, 
the most concerned about the poor and the oppressed acting the opposite of all of that? Why are um, Christians so fearful when they're supposed to be not fearful? And why are they fearful of some things and not fearful of other things? Mm -hmm. And then other questions about um, race and sexuality and uh, why are they the group that is most susceptible to conspiracy theories like QAnon? I just started posing these questions and then answering them through research. So my book has, and it, this sounds very wonky, but um, I think there are like between seven and 800 references or footnotes in it. So it makes it sound like it's this heavy book. I hopefully have re- written it in a way that's very accessible and it's very, it, it's, it kind of carries you along. It doesn't feel like heavy. You know, I'm telling personal stories. I'm talking about uh, my dog. I'm talking about all these things, but using that as a backdrop then to talk about but there is a study that says blah, blah, blah. And, and we come to that conclusion. So it was really out of my own story, my own confusion, that then I realized in a moment, I've got something to offer this. It, right now, there, is a, there are people out there that are doing really good work in critiquing and understanding evangelical subculture that are in the disciplines of sociology, of history, of political science, of even religion, but not in psychology. I could not find anything that was a pure psychology book that was applying psychological research to these questions. That's a very good summary of your book as well. (laughs) And I love all those questions that you also mentioned Mm -hmm. because we'll be diving into some of those today. (laughs) One of those questions that you just mentioned was asking why evangelicals, specifically why evangelicals, tend to be more fearful than others. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah, so there, there, we've known in psychology for a while, or we thought we knew in psychology for a while, that more conservative people, including conservative religious people, tend to be more fearful. Now, some of the early research that we had has actually been questioned, but really at the end of the day, that's where things land. There are a couple of other studies that that sort of pull in a different direction or dispute this a little bit, but really what we find is that conservative people tend to be more fearful. So you think about why would that be? Well, what is the psychology of, and, and by the way, let me be very clear from the outset. I'm not saying being conservative is bad and being liberal is good or vice versa. I'm not trying to make a, a statement like that. What I am trying to say is that there are psychological differences between people who are more conservative and people who are more liberal, and that that gets expressed in their worldview, and that gets expressed in their theology and all kinds of things. Conservative people tend to be conservative, first of all, because of their family of origin, you know, they're socialized to it, or their social context, but psychologically, personally, they usually have temperaments that want things to be the same and predictable. They, they don't like differences. They don't like differences in people. They don't like differences in, um, in, cha- in terms of change. And so their psychological need for things to remain the same gets expressed in terms of um, uh, being more conservative politically. Well, 
think about what's happening culturally. Everything's changing, right? It's it's white people are going to become the minority by somewhere around twenty forty five. Um, the the uh, the 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 mores around um, uh, sexuality are changing. The mores around how we um, treat each other and and power structures in academia and in work and other places. And so their perception of of that is is to meet that with fear. It, it feels very very unsettling to them. It feels bad. And so conservative people tend to psychologically want things to remain the same because they don't like it when things deviate from that pattern. And they also, again, tend to be in positions in our culture of positions of power, positions of control, and that change represents a threat to that. They want to remain in in control and in, in power. And so change represents some kind of threat. So it's really like a protection of their own safety bubble. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It's, yeah. So, you know, if you, if you go back historically, Christian people, not necessarily evangelical per se, but Christian people have been at the head of the table in our culture. They have been in the driver's seat. They have maintained power and control. Well, we've seen since really beginning in the sixties and bubbling up pretty hard in the 70s as well that things were beginning to change culturally with civil rights movements and women's rights and so on and then we saw a little bit of a shift back in the 80s now we've seen since the the turn of the century and particularly in the past decade a really massive shift where they're seeing the writing on the wall that that there's not a guarantee that that christians will maintain the same power base that they will maintain the same control it scares them it freaks them out and so um that that um need for maintaining that control is coming often out of usually out of a sense of fear a fear of that they're going to lose control that they're no longer going to be um in the driver's seat. There's a second piece of this that we're gonna talk about in more detail that is really, in my view, the even deeper piece of why they react the way that they do. But but certainly fear is driving a big part of um, their reaction. So you just mentioned the idea of Christianity being in power, particularly here yeah. in America for context for anyone listening. <laughs> So um, I'd love to go ahead and dive into the concept of Christian nationalism then, because we hear a lot about it today. So I'd love to ask you specifically, what is it and why is it important? This is a great question. And this is one that right now, if there is a front burner issue that's, that's being talked about on Twitter and in the social, other, other social media, it's about Christian nationalism. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Christian nationalism is and is not. Let me start with what it is not. Christian nationalism is not patriotism. It is not thinking that uh, you're proud of your country and you um, you think God, uh, you know, shines His face upon the country necessarily. It's not that. 
it is not just being a good citizen who happens to be a Christian who is uh, civically minded or politically involved. That's not Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is a belief that the United States was specifically ordained by God and that should be governed according to Christian principles and run by Christian people. And there are ways of measuring this that have to do with asking questions about, do you believe that the U.S. is a special country specifically ordained by God in a way that maybe other countries are not? And kind of like the new Israel, um, and that even the founding documents are uh, inspired or, or, um, or shaped by God. Okay. The more someone believes those kinds of things, the, the more Christian nationalists they are. And if you're familiar with the work of Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead, they're both sociologists. They wrote a book called Taking America Back for God. I would recommend that to all of your listeners. Jumping in here to say that I have added a link to the show notes to the book that Dr. Verhagen suggested. It's Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. Other works that they've done, um, Sam Perry has a new book out as well, but that is sort of the, if you want to understand Christian nationalism on a really deep level, in a really good, fair way, that's it. What they say is, looking at their nationalism scale, Christian nationalism scale, um, they have four categories from a little bit or, or from none to a lot. And so they call these categories the rejector, the resistor, the accommodator, and the ambassador. And here's what this means. The rejector scores very low on a Christian nationalism scale. If you ask them, should we display the Ten Commandments? Um, and is the country a specially ordained country by God? And uh, they would say no. Then you've got the next category of resistor, which if you ask those questions, they might be like, it's okay if we have prayer before a public meeting, or it's okay if we have, you know, a a cross in a in a um, a state building or something maybe okay, um, but they're still leaning on that side of the scale. But then you get to the other side of the scale, and that's accommodator. Accommodator is yeah mostly true, and an ambassador is all in, absolutely all in. So if you look at that side of the scale, the accommodator and the ambassador, believe it or not, the majority of Americans fit on that side of the scale. Certainly the, the majority of evangelicals do, but the majority of Americans by a small, like about 52% or so fall on that side of the scale. And so it, that way of thinking about um, the United States is this Christian country who should be governed in, in, um, in, by Christian laws and principles and implied or stated that Christians should be in charge of that um, is not an uncommon belief. Now, the degree to which someone believes that can vary, but that's not an uncommon belief. Um, here's the thing, and here's why this is problematic. It's problematic for a lot of reasons, but, uh, but here's, here's a big part of why it's problematic. The more you are on that side of the scale, 
that, um, let's say, accommodator and certainly the ambassador. The ambassador is like, I'm all about it. Um, those things are highly related to hostility, uh, what we call social dominance orientation, which is um, there needs to be a hierarchy in society where I'm in charge and you're subordinate to me. Uh, high degrees of pessimism, the country's going to hell mm-hmm. and the, 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 you know it's not getting better and we have to do something to change it. And they tend to be incredibly, and this is going to be very counterintuitive, very anti-democratic. That's the, that was one of the big eye-openers for me, is that how anti-democratic Christian nationalism is, is that it is not like true democracy where, um, where there's a plurality and we get to have different voices at the table. It's like, we should be at the top and we should govern and we should have the say. The more you further you get down on that Christian nationalism scale, the more anti-democratic it gets, more hostile, the more pessimistic, uh, the more social dominance you have. Obviously, those things are highly problematic. And the more fired up someone is on that side of the scale, that is what leads us to the things like the January 6th insurrection and uh, the, the other things that we're now concerned about with uh, militias gaining momentum and uh, people running for office who are not only denying elections, but uh, talking about how they're going to reinstall Trump or what all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Those are all kind of derived from that way of being and that way of thinking. Oh my goodness, so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think a lot of us will relate to that everything is going to hell. This is not America that yes. I recognize. The next question that I asked Dr. Verhagen, his answer blew my mind. Hold on to your seats because we're about to dive into conspiracy theories. So one of the biggest topics that I hear from people who are deconstructing is the topic of conspiracy theories. I hear all the time people saying, how on earth can people believe these ideas, believe these things, especially evangelicals? Why is it that they're so drawn to them? I'm not a psychologist, but I finally have one on my show who can actually answer (laughs) these things because I'm not in a position to answer them. So please tell us, why do white evangelicals get so drawn into conspiracy theories like QAnon more easily than others? Yeah, that was one of the big questions that spun my head around as well, because those of us who've been part of this evangelical subculture know that the emphasis has always been on truth, right? Truth with a capital T, mm-hmm, and truth mm-hmm. and truth is so important. And we have to, and yet they're the people that are just suckers for conspiracy theories and things that are just outrageous that are that are clearly not true but they're convinced they are true and i i can't tell you the number of clients for example that i've said you know my parents used to be like all you know they would talk jesus jesus all the time and now they're like on youtube with these QAnon videos and they're trying to figure out how this thing connects to this and what, and it's like, it's like a weird cult and what's happening. I mean, I've had this conversation countless times. And so 
that was super puzzling to me. So I did a deep dive into why people believe conspiracy theories and why in particular white evangelicals are more susceptible, which they are. That's not, um, that's not incorrect. They are more susceptible. They, they believe them. They believe QAnon, for example, at, at higher percentages than any other group. So first, let me say there are at least a dozen risk factors for believing conspiracy theories. Now, before we get into those risk factors, I'll say this. Many people believe conspiracy theories to some degree. You know, um, do, is there a conspiracy? Was was the, the Kennedy assassination a conspiracy? You know, the, the, a lot of people believe that. Was the moon landing faked? Well, not a lot of people, but some oh, people believe that. You know, that one hits me at my core. <laughs> uh, yeah, as a scientist, that's a yeah, that's a crazy thing. I study space specifically, so it's like <laughs> anyway. Go on. <laughs> exactly, you're right. So. You know, this is not new. And in fact, in American history, there have been movements of different conspiracies and, and so on. So QAnon is just the, the hyper on steroids version of all that stuff. But there are, there are at least a dozen risk factors for believing in conspiracy theories. And they're things like um, being more prone to paranoia, uh, being more prone to narcissism, being more prone to, you know, things like that. But I want to focus on the reason why I think evangelicals in particular are more vulnerable. And it is because as a, as a subculture, they are conditioned to think in a certain way that makes them more vulnerable. So there are at least three thinking errors where evangelicals score higher in that make a person more vulnerable to believing a conspiracy theory. So this is going to get slightly technical, but I'm going to, but we'll sort of walk through. The first is that they are more um, prone to what we call teleological thinking. Teleological thinking means someone believes that instead of everything happens for a reason, it's a, everything exists for a reason. So teleological thinking would be, well, the sun exists so that we can have light and warmth. Bees exist so that we can have pollination. Flowers exist so we can have beauty. In other words, things exist for a, for a designated purpose. And evangelicals are conditioned to think like that, right? They're conditioned to think oh, there is this intelligent mind that, that made this thing happen. Well, what that, where, where that lines up with conspiracy theories is it means that things are not the product of chance, right? Things that happen in the world culturally are the result of something planned, something intended, something desired by an intelligent mind. And so when you're in a world where bad things are happening, or there's questions about this or that, or you have the deep state or whatever, it's all feeds this idea that there's this uh, kind of cabal of, of uh, underground leaders who are calling the shots and QAnon, Q is, is aware of all that and he's going to thwart that. And um, these people are all conspiring together. So Evangelicals are essentially conditioned to think in a certain way, teleologically. 
The second is that they're also more vulnerable to something that's called illusory pattern perception. Illusory, like an illusion, illusory pattern perception. And that is a, a tendency to see patterns where patterns do not exist. So in these kinds of studies, they would show someone a Jackson Pollock painting. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Jackson Pollock, he would just splatter paint. He would just take a canvas and splatter. And people who were more prone to this thinking error would see meaning and pattern in that. Or they would have studies where people would do random coin flips and the coin flips would be random, but then they would ask people to explain the coin flips and they would come up with some explanation for why it was tails, tails, heads, tails, tails, heads, heads, tails. That was some kind of pattern that made sense to them. So what this means is a tendency to connect dots that really shouldn't be connected or connect dots where none really exist. And that way of thinking leads you, leads you to conspiracy theories. Oh, this leads to this, and this is because of this and this kind of, and so that's what, what QAnon and all these other conspiracy theories sort of feed on is that these things are all connected. They're not by chance, they're all connected. If you have seen the 2018 TV show Manifest, this part of the conversation reminded me of that character, Ben, who kept going throughout the show, it's all connected, it's all connected. And that's basically what it feels like to talk to a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and the last one is called agency detection. Agency doesn't mean like a, a a, an agency like a business, it means agency like I have agency. I have, I have the, the will to do something, the free will to do something. And this is where motives are detected in something. So here's the study. <clears throat> they would show people a screen where a big triangle and a little triangle and a circle would all move randomly around on the screen. <clears throat> and it was all randomly generated, the, the movement of each of the things. The people that were high in agency detection would start to make stories out of it. Oh, the little triangles chasing the big triangle, or the the circle is the house that the little triangle wants to get into, or they would start seeing motives there where it was just random. And so you can see how these things are very similar to each other, but the idea is that people who are conditioned to think like this is that, that they're seeing motives where there are none. They're seeing intent where there is none. They're seeing in the previous ones, uh, patterns that don't exist. They're seeing connections there. And so it's a way of thinking that makes white evangelicals especially primed to sort of, this is how I'm now making sense of the world, right? The world feels like it's changing and it's bad and bad things are happening and now, oh, this is really connected to this, and this is leading to this, and this part is hidden, but this part we know is, and, and, and so it's, it's really a psychological way of seeing the world or approaching things, and it's fascinating to me because it's sort of like uh, some of the, the, the culture of evangelicalism promotes a certain way of seeing like there's an intelligent mind that makes things happen. And then that gets generalized to all things. It's like, well, things can't, don't just happen by chance. Things happen for a reason. There's got to be some kind of motive or reason or, or connection with, behind things that might just be bad things that happen in the world. 
That's just fascinating. And I was thinking too about with this, these tendencies, this conditioning to tracking these patterns and trying to connect dots that shouldn't be connected. On top of that, they have this theology that they hold to truth, capital T, and they have a closer access to truth and that they have it and the world denies it and they're the ones having to stand up for it. So on top of that, they're, they're out there being like, no, the dots are connecting, the dots are connecting and are just denying the truth. And, and really they're just being a part of agency detection and illusion mm-hmm. pattern detection and mm-hmm. teleological thinking. That's just right. fascinating. And what you're hitting on, I think, if we can go there, is sort of the central premise of my book, which is that what what you're describing is this idea that evangelicals tend to think that they are special and unique and have access to truth in ways that other people don't have and a kind of relationship with God that other people do not have. And consequently that gives them greater insight into things and, and, and more right thinking and all of that. And really what's underneath that is that that ultimately is a form of narcissism. What we know, and this is, this is a hard thing to say, but it is, is that we know that there are higher rates of narcissism in, um, in the church communities that uh, in at least one study that we have, uh, pastors rate higher in, nar- in measures of individual narcissism than we would expect the general population to rate. And so there's individual narcissism, which is the sense of I'm special and right and entitled. But there's also this thing that I didn't know about until I started studying and uh, getting into the research for this book. I wasn't familiar with this. I was trying to make sense of like what's going on with this subculture that explains why they are so hostile and self-centered and in ways that seem antithetical to how I kind of had had come to understand that subculture or at least experienced it early on. And I started thinking, well, it's kind of like a narcissistic family, right? You know, there are, there's, there in therapy, there's studies of narcissistic families where there's one or more people in the family that's a narcissist and the family all sort of orients around that. That wasn't quite it. And then I came across this idea that actually started in studies of what they called soccer hooliganism. I love that term, by the way, or it's actually called football hooliganism. It was soccer hooliganism. And so the hooligans would be uh, the fans of one team who felt like their team was special and the best and other people who disrespected them were their enemies and that they were right to be hostile. And so you would have, and you still do to this day, especially in Europe, you have Mm -hmm. riots and mass fighting and all this stuff in the stands. And the term that they came up with to describe that is called collective narcissism. And collective narcissism is when any group, and there are three parts of this. Number one, they believe that they're special. Number two, they believe that other people outside the group do not respect them or don't see them as special. And so consequently, number three, they feel justified in being hostile and antagonistic toward that group of outsiders. 
And so that is in a nutshell where I kind of landed. If there was a central premise of my book, it is that white evangelical subculture has been infected with collective narcissism. It doesn't mean that every single individual who is a who is an evangelical is a narcissist per se. It means that the the group itself is high in collective narcissism, where they believe we are, and it could be said in a very sort of understated, humble way, but there's a belief of we're special. We have special access to truth and to God. Um, other people don't quite get it, and they don't get us. And now these other people uh, who are outside of this group are actually hostile toward us, um, whether or not they are or not, but they certainly don't don't see the world the same way. And so we have every right to stand up and oppose them. And you add on top of that now, this sort of theological or spiritual layer where it's almost like we have to do this because we're representing God's plan and intention and reputation. So it's now this, this kind of on steroids idea of we, we're special, other people don't get us, we have to oppose those people. And we are not only uh, opposing them, we're, we're obligated to. Mm-hmm. We have to fight back. We have to do cultural warfare because that's what we, we represent God's interest in this culture. And if we don't do it, then something bad will happen. Um, and, and, and so that's really what we're seeing in the big picture with, with white evangelicals is that it is a it is a subculture very high in collective narcissism. Um, I did my own research. I did four little studies that had between 250 and 300 or so subjects in each one. And I found exactly that. I found that um, that people who endorsed what would be traditionally evangelical beliefs also tended to rate much more high, high on a collective narcissism scale. I also found, and this is to kind of go back to another part of our conversation, that there was a huge correlation. And for those of you who know correlations, the correlation was 0.85. It's very rare you're going to do a study and find a a correlation that high. There is a relationship between collective narcissism and Christian nationalism. Um, And so what I have concluded, and I'm not saying that I'm right necessarily, but what I've concluded is that collective narcissism is actually the cover. It's the intellectual, philosophical, spiritual cover for for collective narcissism. In other words, you start with collective narcissism, but that's kind of gross and ugly, and who wants to be that? And so you need a sort of a justification to be to, to, to kind of cover that sort of hostility and that, that sort of culture warfare. And so it's like, well, this is sort of the intellectual or philosophical framework that helps us sort of do warfare against people that are different from us. This was the most mind-blowing part of your book, personally, for me, at least. It was... Mm-hmm completely different than anything I'd read before. And yet at the same time, every sentence, I was like, I absolutely see that. I, I, I yeah. see it. Like it, it, it makes more sense now. And I think for a lot of people who are in the deconstruction community, will, when reading that chapter of the book, 
I mean, there are references all throughout the book, but that particular chapter on it, it, it feels so much, it feels very similar to the conversations that we often have about the topic of self-righteousness. And I think I've personally used that term a lot saying like, wow, like I feel like so often evangelicals feel like such hypocrites. They feel like they're so self-righteous or something like that, but it's mind-blowing for me to hear the psychological perspective and actually getting to the root of it. It's not just self-righteousness. There's there's more to it behind the scenes. And your book did such an excellent job at explaining that and exploring that very deeply and detailed. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I'll tell you, I just got an email today that I'll read an excerpt from, from a guy who has been a career um pastor, uh, his full-time ministry um, in evangelical, evangelical churches. And he wrote me about this part of the book. And he said, this chapter needs to be the core course in every seminary on the planet. I mean it. You have to find a way into seminaries. I knew we had a problem in the church. I just didn't know what it was. And then he goes on to explain what his experience of this and how this sort of makes sense. And what's been wild so far. The book's only been out for a month and a half or so, but I've gotten, I, I expected to get pushback and I still do. And, and that's okay. I, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally good with that. Um, and I, I think, you know, you can't, you can't expect to throw something out like this without that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But what, what has, what has surprised me is that I have heard, and I'm going to say, I don't know the exact number, I have to look it up, but probably six, seven or more um, people that I knew from different Christian spaces like campus ministry, church ministry, um, you, you know, that, that sort of thing, who in most cases were in some kind of full-time ministry themselves, that they emailed me. I had, in some cases, hadn't heard from them in 20 years or more. And I was expecting to read the email and go, what are you doing here? And why are you doing? This? And instead, what I got was more like what I just read to you, which is, thank you so much for this. I knew something was wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it. I don't, didn't know how to explain it. Um, and so for me, that's been a really good surprise. And I, I think there are clearly people in the evangelical community still who um, who think what's going on in their community is crazy and they think it's, it's wrong, but they don't have, they're, they're in such a minority now. They're, they're, you know, I would say probably the 20% minority of that group that they don't, they, they feel crazy. They feel like what almost everyone around me thinks that, um, believes this way. And I just don't, I don't get it. Um, so I've, I've wanted to write it as much for them. And so I'm glad I'm getting that kind of response. I would love to see your book into every seminary. It would be, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man, It'd be great. <laughs> to imagine the uh, impact that would do would be incredible. So if anyone listening is in seminary or has access to seminary, please pass this book around. It would make a dramatic difference and we would really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so um 
before I do a podcast, I like to go online and ask followers if they have any particular questions. A lot of them were already covered. Um, and actually a lot of them were what's wrong with them or something like that, which mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. care to go that blunt. But um, one of them specifically, one of the questions was, why are white evangelicals so preoccupied with getting people saved while avoiding loving people well? Yeah, fantastic question. I'm glad for that question. Obviously there um, there are beliefs theologically in evangelical circles that, that, that as part of that subculture lean them toward that. But I would also say, and this isn't entirely cynical, I think this is, as I've come to understand it, a very real thing. It's also, like we were just talking about, a form of low-key narcissism. And what I mean by that is the, the the implicit message in that is I am right and do this or believe this in the way that I want you to. And that puts me on top of the relationship. And it also allows me to kind of exist in this way where I possess correct information that you must, in order to be okay, must agree with. And then it absolves me of anything else. And then the loving people part is very messy. It's very complicated. It's very time consuming. And the other piece of that that we never talk about is that it often puts the other person on top. It other, often puts the other person in a, in a role where what they think or need often is, is the dominant part of the relationship. So I think there is, first of all, to, to take the most generous interpretation, it is often derived from a, a certain theology that the most important thing is that people say these certain things or pray these, this certain prayer and then they go to heaven and then shoo, we can kind of wipe our foreheads and feel good about that. Um, and but but I think on a on a deeper level, it is it is an outworking of a kind of narcissistic attitude of I've got this nailed down, I'm right, and then you need to see that I'm right, believe it, do what I've said, and then that's that. Um, it 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 puts the person, the evangelical, in the in the seat of power, in the in the seat of control. So I think it's an extension of what we just talked about. And my next question is kind of similar about the outward appearance of um, something positive, but then having, but not following following up with that. (laughs) A little vague, but I think you know where I'm going with this one. Uh, You claim (laughs) research suggests that white evangelicals report greater warmth toward ethnic minorities Uh than most others. And yet they also endorse more racist attitudes towards persons of color. How can that be? Okay, man, is this a good question? And I'm gonna say this another, another, we we, we wanna create a little mini library for your readers from this episode. And so in addition to my book and and the uh, 
the book on taking America back for God, a book that I would say is absolutely essential reading, absolutely essential reading, is called White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, White Too Long. This book is also linked in the show notes for you to check out later. Robert P. Jones is a man who comes from a Southern Baptist background. He is a social science researcher. He is the founder and the director of the Public Religion Research Institute. And he, in this book, is reckoning with his own past in the Southern Baptist tradition, how they have been complicit in in racism throughout the, the history of the U.S. What he found is... And, and this is where this, this comes from. And there are other studies that, that, that parallel this. When he asks questions that are a warmth scale, right? So uh, the questions are about emotional warmth, about people of different racial backgrounds. Let's just say, how do you feel about African-Americans? How do you feel about black people? Why evangelicals go off the chart with that? I love black people. I I have a best friend who's black. I they love they they rate themselves as fantastically warm toward uh, people of different races. So you look at that and you're like, man, that's exactly what we'd hope for, right? Then he has another scale that's called a racism index, and it measures things like, do you think that basically the struggles that black people have in our culture are a result of their own laziness or result of their lack of ambition or, you know, things like that. Do you think that uh, police treat uh, black and white people the same, you know, whatever it might be. There's, there's like 15 items on it, stuff like that. And guess what? They rate the highest on that index. So now you've got this crazy dichotomy of people that say they are the warmest toward a certain group and yet the most racist toward them, at least in attitude. Okay, so how do you make sense of that? Well, there, there are a couple ways to make sense of that, but the, the thing that I, I, I love in terms of uh, research is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is, uh, and by the way, if you're a fan of The Office, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I kind of think that uh, Dunder Mifflin is named after Dunning Kruger, I think, because it's the same idea. It's the same notion. Michael Scott is is Dunning Kruger in body, and Dunning Kruger means that the people that tend to be bad at something rate themselves as great at it. Right. So, and that applies to almost you know any profession. It applies to drivers, like people who are bad drivers rate themselves as really good drivers, and people who are you know, mediocre teachers rate themselves as the best teachers and people who are, you know, you name it. And, and so what we're seeing, and, and there's, um, there's a man in London, a, a psychologist named Keon West, Dr. Keon West, and he did studies using a, a thing called the implicit association test, which is very rapid judgments when you see words associated with a certain group. And then he also, um, uh, took a look at just other social science measures. And, and basically what he concluded is that in this area, just like anything, the reason why the Dunning-Kruger ex- effect exists is because the people that are bad at something 
don't have the understanding or knowledge or skill to know that they're bad at it, right? They don't know. And so someone who, if you ask them, do you like black people? They're like, sure. But then if you say, do you think black people are lazy? They might say, well, yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And they don't realize in, in their in their head, they're like, I'm not racist. I mean, that's just, I mean, all you have to do, you know. And so th- they don't realize that what they're what they're representing is actually a racist attitude. They don't rep- they don't they don't see that the the view that they have is in fact racist and in fact prejudicial or in fact driven by wrong information. They 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 think it's just like, well, yeah, sure. Um, and they don't have the skill set to know it. Um, and, and that comes from being in a culture that is fairly homogenous and um, has certain historical attitudes that, that get passed along. Um, the chapters that I wrote on race, there are two chapters in there, were in some ways the hardest because, um, you know, I have four adopted children, two of them are black, one of them is Hispanic. And I have seen things that I couldn't have seen as just a regular white guy because I've I've seen my black son be treated differently in front of me because they don't know that I'm with him. And in a way that's not maybe an opinion, it's clearly happening. Um, and so my eyes have been open from that experience, from the experience of my clients early in my career, the first five years of my career, 80% of my clients were African-American or Hispanic. And yet I'm a guy who went to a very, very, very white Christian school. And even in college was surrounded by friends who were largely white. This whole like reckoning with race in the evangelical subculture is if you want to get an evangelical mad, talk about race and racism. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's the hot button that they just cannot tolerate. It's, it's, there's no conversation about it. So even like culturally, all this stuff about critical race theory and all the, it's very much like what, what was happening in the sixties with Martin Luther King. And he's a communist, he's a Marxist. He's a, it's just, it's just throwing words out to shut it down. Um, and to and to associate with being anti-Christian, rather than reckoning with all the the yuck of how the the evangelical church has been complicit in this. Um, evangelicals love to talk about William Wilberforce and all these sort of champions of anti-slavery and all this stuff, but but the 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 truth is in our in our culture, um, conservative Christians have been. Have, have not a good track record at all when it comes to issues of race and civil rights. Although most of this interview focuses on the psychology of evangelicals, would you like to also briefly discuss the psychology of deconstruction? Yeah, I would. Uh, and I will say my, my book isn't primarily about deconstruction, although that is, I have thought about the, the, that's a, that's a worthy book to talk about really what is happening with deconstruction. And the first thing I'd say is that deconstruction means different things. And that's sometimes when we talk about it, we're actually talking about different things. And so disentangling what we're talking about is, 
may be important. Sometimes deconstruction is a path toward leaving, and sometimes it's a path toward trying to stay or seeing if one can stay. Um, so sometimes it results in a leaving, and sometimes it results in a at least an attempt to figure out how, given the things that I'm now aware of or now hold to be true, how do I stay in this faith tradition or this church? The way I would think about it is, this is an analogy that's faulty, but if you think about a partner relationship, um, let's say you have, you're in love with this person and you have this great courtship and marriage and early on and everything's great. And then some things happen, maybe some big things, or maybe just a series of little things. And you start having all your expectations challenged and you start to reconsider the relationship. And maybe even some things have been big enough to really shatter trust or shatter your concept of the other person. So then the question in your head is, do I stay or go? And people land in different places with that. Um, there's some people that have had major breaches of trust and they're out of that relationship. There are other people that have, for a variety of reasons, decided to stay and kind of work it out. And in nearly all cases, it's not going to be the same. And I, that's how I come to see it is it's a, this, when, when someone is deconstructing, it's because they have either grown up or later embraced a faith tradition that now is being severely challenged by other things in their life. Maybe they have a gay child. Maybe they have they they come to see um, uh, racism in ways they hadn't seen before within the church. Maybe they begin to rethink doctrinal points about things like hell or whatever it might be. And so they they come to a place where, just like in any relationship. They're having to think through, do I stay or do I go? And what does that look like? And the thing that people miss when they talk about deconstruction, and this is the thing I want people to hear is when someone's in a process of deconstruction, they can't not do it. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is not something that they just sort of want to whim. It's, it's something that's in their bones that they can't not do. And I've heard interviews where people talk about deconstruction, like it's some sort of trendy, faddish thing, which it's really, that's incredibly disrespectful. Because when people are in this process of deconstructing, it's really because their faith has historically been pretty important to them, maybe even very central to them. And now they're faced with a relationship that has been dear to them, that is being severely challenged, and they're having to think through, do I need to exit? And what does that look like? And, or can I stay and in what way could I stay and, and where can I stay? And if I do, where's my home in this? Uh, so it, it's something that a person just, they, they have to do. Um, and I, I have increasingly found it to be something that's, I think for, for many, many people essential. And I much prefer someone going through a process of, of honesty construction than someone who just sort of passively goes along or in some kind of without a um, kind of a, with a thoughtlessness of, of of really considering their faith. I really love it when people are 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 taking it very seriously and hashing through it in a very honest way. 
Mm-hmm. It makes them more honest and makes it more theirs. That's how, what yeah, I felt right. for my deconstruction. Absolutely. Journey. It feels more like my actual. Faith, that's right. Which has been very powerful. And when you do it, it, it actually, you realize how much all of the people around you and maybe even yourself are governed by fear. And when you start getting to this place, you realize there's so much freedom in that, that you don't have to be sort of governed by this fear. You could, there's so much freedom in being able to, to really challenge things that seem not right and to decide what part is stays and not in this sort of like willy nilly way, but in a way that's really, really sincere and a real honest attempt to kind of get to a place where there's an authentic faith. My next question in this conversation, which was also my last question, was actually inspired by a very specific line from his book. So I decided to go ahead and read this quote to you. It is not my goal to change the minds of the 81% of evangelicals who voted for Trump those who see conservative politics and Christianity as unquestionably linked are unlikely to see the world through a different lens, no matter how well-reasoned or researched the counter-argument. I don't intend to change their minds, but to illuminate the psychology of most white Christians for others who want to understand, Christian or not. I found this quote quite meaningful because... For me personally, I think that there is such a delicate balance between speaking truth, speaking up for what we believe in, but also acknowledging that some differences are not going to go away. I'm sure most people listening to this will understand what I mean when I say that some conversations are simply unproductive. For some people, especially loved ones, certain conversations would only create distance in that relationship. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom in knowing when to have that conversation, when to initiate dialogue, when to speak up if there's something that is truly just wrong compared to when we need to just respect each other's differences and acknowledge when we should not have dialogue. And that's really hard for me to do. That's really hard for me to think about because I I so believe in speaking up for what I believe in. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that some people are not persuadable. And all I will do is waste my energy and my time. And I have to respect more so myself and my own emotional boundaries than even them. (laughs) I have to take care of my own capacity for dialogue. Anyway, so I decided to ask Dr. Dave Verhagen why he decided to not give himself the burden of trying to persuade people out of Christian nationalism and all the other dangers of fundamentalist Christianity. So here we go. I think that a lot of us have a tendency to want to persuade evangelicals, especially loved ones, and we want to persuade them out of all of the things we've been talking about today. But 
interestingly, you did not give yourself that burden. You were very explicit about that in your introduction. Why should we not try to change the minds of devout evangelicals and Trump followers, for example? Great question. So here's what I would say. I, I think um, if, we, if we learn the psychology of persuasion, what we realize is that if someone holds a belief and we come at it and we don't overcome them, it actually strengthens their belief because the more someone argues a point, the more they sort of reinforce what they believe. So in doing that, sometimes when we come at a family member or friend, we're actually inadvertently reinforcing that. We're, we're making it stronger because they feel like they left the conversation with it intact, or if they felt challenged, then they just sort of disappear back into their little silo that feeds them the information that, that is congruent with what they already see or believe. So it doesn't work. That's the first thing. But the other is that I, because I don't want to strengthen someone's position necessarily, but also I, I do think that it is okay to make a judgment call where my choice is to choose the relationship over being right or them being right or wrong. I do want to add the disclaimer to this conversation that there are, of course, so many situations where the agree to disagree concept does not apply and is simply not possible. This goes back to that delicate balance I mentioned earlier. It's up to you to decide what are you comfortable with disagreeing on and when you need to establish some emotional boundaries. Like I think having the relationship as, as a priority, and I, I won't name names, but obviously you can imagine with family members, with friends, um, I, I'm still surrounded by white evangelicals. I mean, it's, it's not something that, I mean, these are the waters that I'm swimming in. And so I don't want to have my relationships marked by we're always going to have to debate these things or push back. I want it to be like, it, it's okay if you know that I come from a different position and you come from a different position and we don't have to, like we can focus on other things that preserve the relationship. It really makes me sad that so many families have been blown up by this and so many friendships have been blown up by this. And um, I think he would be okay with me saying this, but my brother and I are on very different pages with this. But I remember he came to visit me in Nashville uh, a while ago, and we were just sitting out on the back porch. And he says, you know, I just can't imagine letting um, something like this, uh, you know, create uh, or hurt our relationship. And I said, I feel the same way. Like, I just, I... I just won't allow that, um, at least on my side of it, I won't allow that. And I've had to do the same thing. I get invited to a trip every year where the majority of people on the trip think very much like what we're talking about. And I don't mind that they know that I don't line up with that, but I'm not making that trip about trying to convince them that, that they're, they're thinking wrong. I, I'm just emphasizing the relationship. 
And so we don't want to become fundamentalists ourselves in this, where we feel like we're right, they're wrong, and now we have to convince them otherwise. I think it's totally fine to be um, to make a judgment call that the relationship comes before being right. Mm, that's that's something a lot of us need to hear. So thank you so much for that. So I like to give my guests the opportunity to give some encouragement to our listeners. And in your introduction, you mentioned the, the term spiritually homeless. After leaving fundamentalist Christianity, many people feel spiritually homeless. What encouragement or advice do you have for someone in this position? It's a good, it's a good question for us to end on. And I'm going to go back to my other analogy of a relationship and let's say that a person has had a breakup. In this case, we're talking about a breakup with a faith tradition. And what do you do with a breakup? Well, you grieve it. You get mad about it. Sometimes you blame yourself. Sometimes you blame other people. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you do all those things and those are normal good things to be doing. And you don't judge how you're feeling. You don't judge the fact that you're grieving or that you're mad or that you're, you know, feeling a certain way. But then hopefully what you do, if you're going to get to a good spot, is that you begin to take inventory of it. You begin to go, what have I learned? What have I gained? What mistakes have I made? What triumphs did I have? And that's what you do, hopefully, with any relationship when, you, when you've parted ways. And then what I want to encourage people to do is to figure out how they get back in the game. That doesn't mean necessarily jump back into a church that is uh, of a mindset that, that is, is not where they want to be. But the fact that they're wrestling with it makes the point that their faith and the, the spiritual side of their life is very important to them. And so my hope, when I see a client who's had a breakup, in a, in a relationship with a, with a partner, I often see the tendency to want to fold into themselves, right? Just to be like, okay, I'm not going to risk that anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to take myself out of, out of the game. I'm going to, I, I hear that very regularly, but what I try to nudge people toward is even if you're going to get hurt, it's better to kind of be in the game than not. It's better to sort of be back in the seeking of that connection. And so the same thing I would say with the spiritually homeless person is you're going to go through a process of being sad, mad, doubting, blaming, all that. Take inventory of that and then figure out then what is life giving for you moving forward? What, what is the kind of community or the kind of people or the kind of spiritual expression or discipline that you want to be a part of and then begin to do that. Everybody does that in their own timeline, but to really not just sort of fold into yourself and then say, all this is bad, nothing can be good and sort of check out, but really to re-engage in a way that really is life-giving for them. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Haley. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or would like to dialogue with me, you may join me in my community on Instagram at Haley the Scientist. That's Haley spelled H-A-L-E-Y. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support me, the best way is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you prefer. It makes a big difference and really helps me promote the podcast. Also, I'd like to note that my platform is purposefully not monetized, meaning I am not sponsored, I am not making money off of this, and I'm not selling you anything. My work is entirely inspired by my own interest, research, and commitment to this community. Since podcast episodes do take a lot of time and work, though, I tend to publish about an episode a month, so to stay up to date with my platform, Instagram is the best option. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening and have a divinely modern day.